1843, the commander of the Tucson Presidio, Captain Jose Antonio Comodaran, sent a pleading letter to his cousin, Colonel Jose Maria Elias Gonzalez, who has been serving for years as the military commander for Sonora. Comodoran was nearly 46 and had been stationed at Tucson for a quarter of a century. Historian James Officer says that he could probably claim more experience fighting Apaches than any other active Presidio commander. And that's why his letter is so striking. In it, he tells his cousin frankly, quote, The soldiers have no cartridge boxes or saddles, and we have but 20 horses for 88 men. The next time the Apaches attack, we may have to defend ourselves with lances, something we cannot do very effectively because we have so few of those weapons also. End quote. He also added in that the Presidio Company was missing 11 men and 19 muskets it was supposed to have. Concerned about his present dire situation, Comodoran had no way of knowing that he was living through the last few tough years of Mexican rule over Arizona. His mind was thinking about problems with the Apaches and the Papagos, supply shortages and food reserves, and who was actually in control of Sonora these days. These problems will keep compounding until, three years later, it is an exhausted Arizona that will limp its way into the Mexican-American War. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 19, Seesaw for Survival. By the arrival of the 1840s, all the issues that we covered in our high-level view of post-independence Mexico back in episode 15 are now bearing fruit. Politics was a revolving door of Mexican strongmen characterized in Sonora by the running feud between José Cosme de Urrea and Manuel María Gandra. Priests had all but vanished from Arizona as the Franciscans went into decline and no secular curas could take their place. Money and vital goods were in short supply, leaving soldiers unequipped and unpaid. Worse yet, interference from the United States was about to fling the country headlong into war. And, are you tired of me saying this yet? The Apaches were striking everywhere, every day. However, surprisingly, we are not going to start off today by talking about the Apaches and their continual raiding. Instead, the Mexicans were dealing with an unexpected revolt from an entirely different tribe, the Papagos, or Tohono O'odham. Now, O'odham complaints stretch back years. You might remember that we discussed last episode that they sent a complaint in 1835 about encroachment on their land and water. They also blamed the Apaches' monsos for causing damage inside their territory. The very next year, 1836, Father Antonio Gonzalez, the last Franciscan left in Arizona, wrote a letter to the governor detailing that relations between the Papagos and their neighboring tribes were at an all-time low. Gonzalez had tried with little success to get Tucson's Justice of the Peace to enforce trespassing laws for horses and cattle from white settlers that were trampling and eating grains being raised by the natives at San Javier del Bac and at El Pueblito. 
At one point, the unhappy Odom actually killed an animal that had gotten into their field, leading Gonzalez to recompense the owner so as to avoid hostility. Not helping the fact was the secularization meant that the Odom no longer had to do communal labor to support the mission, and Gonzalez could not find many who were willing to do the same work voluntarily, meaning a decrease in the overall level of food being harvested. The Tejono Odom and the related Akamel Odom, or Pimas, were also none too pleased with the peace treaty made with the Pinal Apaches in 1836. To them, an Apache was an Apache, and they did not readily distinguish between those the Mexicans considered friend and those they considered foes. For example, Chief Azur of the Gila River Akamel Odom had been promised a new suit of clothes for every campaign he made against hostile tribes. However, the promise had been broad enough that Azul thought the Pinals were fair game for this. When he showed up at Tucson in late summer 1837 with 15 sets of Apache ears, he was rebuffed because the Presidio commander was more than a little certain those ears had originally been attached to Pinal Apache heads. In 1838, gold was discovered in the Altar Valley, leading to an influx of miners. Of course, they didn't care that much of this area already belonged to the Tejono Odom. One man in particular rode into the Odom village of Carrecito with a work crew to deepen its well to provide enough water for the influx of Mexicans. The Odom offered to help, but became incensed when the man decided to use all the dirt from the excavation to channel the water to a site of his choice, basically stealing all the water from a well that the Odom relied on. The offended natives naturally confiscated the man's tools and forced him to leave. He would then send exaggerated reports of this incident, claiming that the Papagos were in revolt. Conditions in the Altar Valley continued to deteriorate from there. In the spring of 1840, the political chief at Altar, Dionisio Gonzalez, decided that a military show of strength was needed to force the Odom back into submission. With a force of 150 men, Gonzalez met with the Odom at a place called Cobota in the Tecolote Valley, southwest of modern-day cells near the international border. Gonzalez decided that he didn't need to be diplomatic in his dealings at all and laid out a laundry list of complaints against the Odom. Upon being berated like this, the Odom, who had their own longer list of complaints, responded by attacking. The battle did not last long as the Odom were severely outnumbered, and in the end, 12 natives and one Mexican wound up dead. The only upside is that Gandra, who was back to being governor at this point, replaced Gonzalez after the incident and left instructions to the new guy in charge to be gentler with the natives. But that instruction came a little too late. By the summer of 1840, the Yaki who were working in the gold fields joined with the Odom in a full-scale uprising. They hit settlements in the Altar Valley, killing a number of Mexicans, despite a special military force that had been assembled to stop such an occurrence. Finally, in November 1840, Gandra decided that he had to personally come down and put an end to this revolt. With a large force gathered from across Sonora, he marched into Arizona. The final confrontation occurred in January 1841 in a canyon near the foot of Babokivari Peak in the mountains of the same name just west of State Route 286. 
more than 40 Odom would be killed, and more than 1,000 head of livestock would be recovered by the Mexicans. The Mexicans, however, had only two men killed, with 31 wounded. That night, four Odom envoys met with Mexican officials to talk about maintaining the peace. This would be the largest battle of the so-called Papago War, but would not end the tensions in the region. A couple years later, in November 1842, Captain Comandoran at Tucson would receive a visit at his quarters by armed Odom. It speaks to the inability of the fighting force of the Presidio that they had not been disarmed while entering, as was supposed to be the case. The Odom claimed that the Apaches Mansos living on the outskirts of Tucson had stolen horses from San Javier del Bac and given them to other, more belligerent Apache bands. Comodoran was skeptical of the report, saying that the Odom were mistaken and they had mistook the Apache Mansos for another group during a recent raid. However, he promised that if they could prove their story, he would personally see to it that the horses were returned and appropriate action was taken against the Pachimansos. The Odom, who had their own serious doubts about Comodoran's sincerity, heard only that nothing would be done and made a dash from the captain's quarters to take matters into their own hands. Comodoran ran after them and tried to place himself between the two groups, but a fight broke out anyway and was only halted when the commander called for soldiers to restore peace. Now, to their credit, the Odom did come again the next day, unarmed this time, to apologize for their rash action. But Comodoran would pass along to Colonel Elias Gonzalez down in Sonora his concerns that this could be a prelude to other serious confrontations between the Odom and Mexicans. I should note that Comodoran would use this opportunity to again ask for more men and supplies to be sent to Tucson. The Tucson commander's fears turned out to be prescient, as a month later a force of Odom would put the mines at a place called Kitovac under siege. Another letter in early 1843 reports rumors that restless Odom in the Altair Valley were making alliances with the Pima along the Gila River for a new rebellion. Fortunately, most of the Mexicans' allies did not want to participate, and there was even a split among the Odom themselves between the hardliners and those who wanted to get on with their lives. A week after sending this letter, Comodoran was able to catch an Odom agitator at El Pueblito. Though he originally gave some benign excuse for his presence, after a night in captivity, he confessed that a full-scale uprising was in the works and that regular raiding parties were now being sent out. Comodoran proposed a diplomatic touch, whereby he would release any Odom prisoners and offer amnesty to any Papago or Pima who would separate themselves from this rebellion. The follow-up to this, however, was a military one. Jose Cosme de Orea, now back again in the governorship, sent a force to the Altar region to put down those Odom still in rebellion. On April 10, 1843, once again near Babokivari Peak, this force fell upon the Odom. However, despite a loss of a lot of cattle, the natives were able to escape out of an encircling movement. Ten days later, they would clash again, resulting in another victory for Mexican forces. Mop-up operations would continue into early May, and this campaign would mark the end of the Papago War. 
Most of those who still harbored thoughts of rebellion were forced to flee to the Gila River, Pima, or the Maricopa. However, this is where Comodoran's diplomatic attempts were starting to bear fruit. Urea had given his approval for the plan of amnesty for those who promised not to rise up again. The Pima, Papago, and Maricopa all expressed regret at their actions and agreed to live in peace from there on out. At least according to the Mexican sources from the time. But the Papago War was just one conflict the Mexicans were fighting. You may have noticed that, through all of this, an even more bitter internal dispute was unfolding. I'm, of course, talking about the running battle for control of Sonora between Manuel Maria Gandra and Jose Cosme de Urrea. When we left off last week, Gandra, who remember supported the centralist government in Mexico City, had managed to take back the governorship in 1838 after the usurper Urrea, who was calling for a return of states and federalist national government, had been driven off. In 1840, this conflict would suddenly flare up again. On December 21st of that year, a group of citizens at Arispe suddenly began agitating against Gandara's regime and calling for the return of federalism. In January, Urea himself would slip back into Sonora from Durango and issue another decree condemning Gandara. This resulted in yet another round of skirmishes between supporters of the two men that spring, with Gandra's supporters coming out on top. Urea was forced to flee to Durango again. Gandra had beaten his rival, and things seemed to stabilize. Now, if you've been paying any attention to the podcast over the past several episodes, you know this is about the time that some political upheaval down in Mexico City will upend everything. And guess what? Right around this time, another massive political upheaval down in Mexico City upended everything. In August 1841, a high-ranking general in Guadalajara revolted against Mexican President Anastasio Bustamante. Yes, Anastasio Bustamante was the man we talked about being ousted from the presidency in 1833, but due to the revolving door of Mexican politics he had climbed his way back. In September 1841, the major news came. None other than Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana himself, the man who had given Bustamante the boot the last time around, had joined the rebellion. In case you are wondering, here's the miraculous political rehabilitation of Santa Ana. Following his defeat and capture in Texas, he managed to escape the popular sentiment at the time that he should be executed. Instead, he was shipped to Washington, D.C. and met with President Andrew Jackson, where he had to promise that Mexico would not try to take back Texas. Eventually released back to Mexico, he found in the meantime all his treaties had been rejected by the new federal government. He himself was vilified and was now a persona non grata in the country. However, he was able to get himself back into the country's good graces when he participated in a small conflict with the French three years later, so in 1838. France had, for years now, been on Mexico to redress grievances and losses by French citizens during the country's continuous bouts of instability. When the current disagreement, centered upon a bakery of all things, erupted into armed hostility, 
Santa Anna found himself in the army again, helping to defend Veracruz. It was during this conflict that he would actually lose his leg. Santa Anna would play up this injury, suffered while in the line of duty, like something out of a bad sitcom. Though the French question was eventually resolved diplomatically, Santa Anna could claim that it was his bold actions that helped save the country. So when the revolt that unseated Bustamante went searching for a new president in 1841, guess who was able to get himself put into the hot seat? Again! And who was there with his old general? Yep, you've guessed it. José Cosme de Urrea. Now, it wasn't an easy road. Carrying the banner of federalism, Urrea had actually been in revolt just a couple years earlier. In episode 13, I mentioned that Urrea would be thrown into prison for turning on Santa Ana. It's after his expulsion from Sonora by Gandra in 1838, and during the French conflict, that that would happen. I honestly don't have a ready source to say how the two made amends, but they apparently patched things up enough that Urrea's military rank and position were restored. So, up in Sonora, Gandra received a message. Revolt against Bustamante. Stop. Santa Ana, president again. Stop. Oh, by the way, you are no longer needed as military commander of Sonora. Stop. Sensing that an order to step down as governor too was also coming, Gandra resigned that post. By June 1842, a triumphant Urrea was back in Sonora as both governor and military commander. And Gandra? He could see the handwriting on the wall, right? Political change beyond his control had dealt a better hand to Urrea, and he retired or pledged to serve the legitimate government. Right? Yeah, not so much. He immediately sent out feelers to the disgruntled Yaqui people to induce them to take up arms against Urea and his followers. Just to prove the old saying that politics makes strange bedfellows, the leader of the Yaquis that Gandra dealt with was a man known as General Tomas. Just months before, the now former governor had put a price on Tomas's head. When Urea found out that his rival was stirring up rebellion among the Yaquis, he announced that anyone found supporting Gandra would be deprived of their village land. In response, the Yaquis went from talking about revolt to actually revolting. On July 24, 1842, a force of some 600 warriors, led by Gandra's brother Juan, stormed Hermosillo, leading to casualties and damage before they were run off. This was the kickoff to what is aptly known as the Rebellion of 1842. For months, forces fighting for Urrea and Gandra would square off throughout Sonora. This time, however, Gandra's armies would suffer the most defeats, though they were still scrappy enough to attempt to overpower the garrison at the capital of Ures itself. This feud is going to continue into 1843, and Gandra will again talk the Yaquis into siding with him. Despite this, his forces will be defeated again and again, and by early winter 1843, he was on the ropes. Just to add to his infamy a little, Gandra took hostages before a battle in December, who he had executed when his forces lost yet another engagement. Realizing he couldn't win on the field, Gandra turned to a place where he might be able to eke out a victory. Mexico City. 
1844, supporters for both Urrea and Gandra were duking it out politically in the capital. Urrea supporters accused Gandra of having set off a race war, while Gandra supporters accused Urrea right back of being an unstable revolutionary. This back and forth, in the words of historian James Officer, quote, managed to convert the Sonoran squabble from a local power struggle into a national nuisance, end quote. The Mexican Minister of War and the Navy told the Congress in January 1844, quote, In the Sonoran War, the struggle is not one of causes but of person, and these persons are selfish and cruel. Might talks, might prevails, and no effort is made even to find excuses that could put a better face on the acts of violence that take place, end quote. His statement took on more weight after some Urean forces threatened to invade Chihuahua when a town there wouldn't turn over some Ganderistas who had taken refuge. Deciding enough was enough, the central government on April 1st decided that everybody involved in the Sonoran conflict had to lay down their arms. Urea was quickly replaced as both governor and military commander. There will be a couple more rounds of this conflict, but I'm going to hold off going into it until next week, as we need to bring the other major pieces of the Pimaria Alta up to the present as well. That's right, it's time to talk about the Apaches again. Remember that a spirit of uncompromising warfare now existed between certain Apache bands and Mexicans due to the slaughter of Chief Compa and his group during the Johnson Affair. In the early 1840s, the Chiricahua Apaches were better armed and mounted than ever before, reaching a pinnacle of military supremacy that they hadn't seen since the 1780s. Historian Edwin R. Sweeney reports that they were now attacking in groups of 100 or more, a far cry from the hit-and-run guerrilla tactics everyone had come to expect. They also began to ride further south into Sonora. They rode boldly into the Sonora River Valley and even reached the outskirts of the capital of Urez itself meaning that move south to better protect itself, had all come to naught. The Presidios had no money to fund any sort of defenses or retaliation to this. In January 1842, the official government newspaper in Sonora printed that the soldiers of the Santa Cruz garrison were considering deserting en masse and fleeing to safer locations further south. This was a thought being entertained, the report noted, by many other Presidios as well. The Presidio's lack of funds and supplies can clearly be seen in late 1842, after the newly reinstalled Governor Urrea called for a new Apache offensive. Lieutenant Roque Ibarra, acting commanding officer at Tubac, was to lead a combined force from Tucson, Tubac, and Santa Cruz to rendezvous with another force along the San Pedro River. However, two days after he was supposed to make that rendezvous, we find him dispatching letters to explain why he hadn't gotten moving yet. In theory, each of the garrisons were to outfit this force with some supplies or men or weapons. But Tucson didn't have enough cowhides to make all the bags to carry the provisions they needed. And it could only provide 60% of the provisions Ibarra had requested and there was definitely no salt to be had in the Presidio either. When the Santa Cruz forces arrived, they had a grand total of 20 men. Four of them were ill, 14 had guns that didn't work, and two 
didn't have guns at all. Tubac could only muster one of its soldiers, as three were sick and the remaining four had to watch over what ammunition and weapons were left for the residents' defense. And once this group did get to Tucson, they had to wait for their weapons to be repaired. The cattle they requested had not been rounded up, and there was still not enough bags for supplies. Though this last point was a little moot too, as there was not enough mounts to carry those supplies in the first place. Ibarra did make his rendezvous, but what forces he mustered were negligible at best. It's during this time that we find Comodoran pleading with Elias Gonzalez to send more supplies to the Presidio. In 1843, Comodoran and a small force rode to Arispe seeking more arms and ammunition. While they were away, the Apache struck at the Sopari Ranch, stealing a number of horses. Local civilians took after them, also calling upon the natives at San Javier del Bac for help. And this group was able to catch up with the raiders, retrieve the livestock, and kill one Apache. But during this time, the Apaches continued to run the table. As a side note for something I promise we will get much more into in a coming episode, it's here that we first see reports of an Apache leader going by the Mexican name of Mangas Coloradas, or Red Sleeves. In 1842, though, the various Chiricahua bands actually made overtures of peace with the state of Chihuahua after five years of all-out war. The leaders of Chihuahua, as part of a peace settlement agreed to in early 1843, again promised to provide the Chiricahua with rations, though it would only be a couple years before the old problem of shortages would drive everyone back into conflict. During this time, an attempt was also made to make a similar deal in Sonora. Urrea met with representatives of various Apache bands at Guaymas in June 1843. The governor was inclined to have good relations with the Apaches and was amenable to have peace if Apache depredations in Sonora would be brought to a halt. The talks were looking good, but then events happening elsewhere caught up with everyone. At the Presidio of Fronteras, the soldiers killed several Chaconan Apache men for reasons that aren't entirely clear to us. The Presidio had been raided in late May by Western Apache. Seven Chaconan were present and offered to ride out and recover the livestock that was stolen. They were successful, but upon their return to Fronteras, the soldiers suddenly turned their weapons on them. Six of the seven were killed, with the last managing to flee. Once news of this spread, an Apache response to what was essentially cold-blooded murder was inevitable. Mangas Colorales and a fellow leader raided the Presidio, killing two of the men there. With this, talks of peace with Sonora ended as abruptly as they had started. By now, the Papago War had been concluded, so the military leaders in Sonora and Arizona began putting together a campaign against the Apaches. Colonel Antonio Narbona, principal commander for Sonora's northern line, would lead the expedition of 241 men, which is quite impressive considering all the obstacles to putting an army in the field that we've talked about up to this point. Setting out toward the east from Tucson on June 29, 1843, they would encounter their first Apache the next day. These were seen in the hills, shouting down insults to the army and boasting of the livestock, guns, and ammunition they possessed. 
The Apaches vanished into those same hills when Narbona sent a small contingent to challenge them. The army proceeded to the San Pedro River and then followed it towards its junction with the Gila. Along the way, more insults and jeers came down from the Apaches hiding among the high places all around them. However, the Apaches would take a completely different tactic on July 3rd, deciding to rush the Mexican army in a head-on battle. Fortunately for Narbona, his scouts had spotted this movement, and the army had time to prepare. During the fighting, he was able to isolate a small pocket of 15 Apache, including two women and a child, and had them all slaughtered. The rest of the Apache disappeared back into the hills. It was hardly a glorious or decisive battle, but it was a win, so Narbona did what great military men from all ages have done. He declared victory and abruptly turned around and marched back home. But we know the Mexicans will never get their complete victory over the Apaches. As a case in point, later on in 1843, the Apache would sweep down and attack a gathering of ranchers at a place called La Boca de Noria, near present-day Lochiel, right on the international border east of Nogales. Numerous heads of cattle were stolen, while at least 30 people were killed. Many of them were shareholders in the San Rafael de la Zange land grant in the San Rafael Valley. The next year, so September 1844, Comodoran in Tucson was informed by friendly Apaches that their more hostile brethren were in the area of Peña Blanca Lake, which sits a short distance northwest of present-day Nogales. He mounted an expedition immediately, and on September 7th had a skirmish with a small band in the Atascosa Mountains. After a few Apache deaths, their leader sued for peace, but mentioned a second raiding party that was striking further south in Sonora. Comodoran immediately sent word about this intelligence, but a couple days after arriving back at Tucson, he received word that the raid had already happened. The Apaches in question were supposedly heading toward the Babucumari area along the San Pedro River, so Comodoran gathered a force of 40 men and marched out on September 11th to find a spot to intercept them. However, after waiting at his chosen ambush point for three days without spotting any raiders, he was forced to head back to Tucson. Once there, he learned the Apaches had taken a different route than he had anticipated, and they had managed to slip around the Presidial forces. Barely two weeks later, Comandaran was again marching out after hearing news of more marauders. Early on September 29th, members of the garrison at Tubatama in Sonora, roughly 20 miles southwest of Nogales, rode into the Presidio to report an attack that had left 11 dead, one captured, and a host of horses and cattle stolen. Within two hours, Comandaran was marching out with a force of 59 soldiers and Apache Mansos. Late that evening, they were able to find fresh evidence of the path of the raiding party. Comodoran chose to press on through the night, though by this time his fighting force had dwindled to 40 men due to exhaustion. The army would be hit twice by heavy rains as they pushed forward, and close to dawn, Comodoran had to press on with only 8 cavalrymen and 10 foot soldiers due to a lack of good horses. Everyone else was told to go back to Tucson to recover, or to catch up with the advance party as soon as they were able. By dawn, Comodoran and his remaining men were at the foot of Picacho Peak, where they surprised a force of nearly 50 Apaches. 
A running battle stretching as long as five miles ensued. The small Mexican force was only able to kill a handful of Apache, but they rescued a woman taken captive at Tupatama and nearly 150 cattle and horses. While Comodoran was out earning his probably late, not-sufficient salary, more conflicts were happening further south, but these involved three parties, Sonora, Chihuahua, and the Apaches. As I've said, the Sonorans were always resentful about the Chihuahuans and their dealings with the Apaches. From their perspective, the Chihuahuans would make peace with the Apaches and then turn a blind eye as said Apaches raided into Sonora. For their part, the Chihuahuans denied this, claiming that these Apaches, mostly settled around Janos, had stopped the practice of hiding in one state and raiding into another. They also made the sort of valid point that Sonora could have had peace too if the soldiers at Fronteras hadn't randomly started killing people. The hostility between the two territories continued to mount through 1844, as did the Apache raiding. After Apaches managed to lure the 30-man garrison at the Presidio of Santa Cruz into a trap and wipe them all out, Colonel Elias Gonzalez, who you might remember was the military leader for all of Sonora, decided that enough was enough. He led a campaign into Chihuahua, driving towards Janos itself. On August 23rd, he struck the Apaches living around Janos, killing 15 of them at least and taking more captive. By September, the state-controlled newspaper in Sonora reported that the entire campaign had killed around 80 Apache men, women, and children. The Apaches living in Chihuahua bolted for the relative safety of Arizona and New Mexico, while leaders such as Mangas Colorados already began plotting revenge. Of course, this invasion of a neighboring territory came close to bringing Sonora and Chihuahua to an honest-to-goodness civil war. Elias Gonzalez had to justify his action and immediately sent word to all the communities in eastern Sonora to submit testimonials about Apache attacks against them and anything they could provide to link those attacks to the Apaches at Janos. Inquiries and arguments about this matter would now play out in Mexico City, though, like much of what happened during this period, nothing would ultimately be resolved. In the end, state historian Thomas Sheridan said it best when he remarked, quote, The brief history of Mexican Arizona, then, can only be understood as a desperate seesaw for survival. The Apaches would attack. The Mexicans would counterattack. The Apaches would attack again, in larger numbers, with better guns. The brief fluorescence of Hispanic Arizona withered under a harsh Athapascan wind. End quote. Next week, we are going to come to the end of the Ride of the Seesaw as we bring everything up to the year 1846 and the fateful moves happening in Mexico City that would eventually see the country go to war with their aggressive neighbor to the north. Arizona, dry, hot, dirty, and poor Arizona, was not the prize the Norte Americanos were really hoping to get out of the conflict, but like it or not, in a few years, Arizona would be theirs. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye. Goodbye.